and welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. This is episode nine. I am Zach Faulkner Barfield, founder of the Perfect Gentleman One PG, and alongside me is James Marwood. Hello, Zach. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to today. It seems like a while since we've spoken. But it feels like a while. It does it seems? I think a lot's been happening. A lot's been happening, exactly, and we've got lots of things to talk about. And this month, the next four episodes are all um, have a literary theme, generally. Mm, yes, book month. It's book month, yes. We're going to talk a lot about books and and books in all different subject areas. And, and we have an interview with an author, and it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Yes, I think so. Have you been well? Yes, we've had snow and hail and frost in springtime. So um, I haven't been out much. I haven't been in the garden. I had a late run to the, the airport last night to pick up my other half and there was frost on the car. Just uncalled for it this time of year. I think it's very bad that we're sitting in, in May and it's cold and all four seasons in one day here in the UK. More sun, please. So what's been happening in the news then? GQ, the uh, the lovely um, gentleman's magazine. Gentleman's Quarterly, as was. Yes, as um, it used to be known as, uh, has launched its stylish gentleman list. And there's some interesting names on it. Yes. And some people that I certainly wouldn't be calling stylish. Well... Yes. I would say some of them are, and they have some interesting choices. But um, I, I kind of looked at it and go, I, I'm, I'm wondering what they mean by style. We talked about this in our earlier podcast, is the fashion versus style thing. Should they be calling them the world's most stylish men, or should they be calling them the world's most fashionable men? Yeah, I think there is a, there is a point to that. I mean, there are some on that list that I definitely agree with. Idris Elba, for example, I think is invariably very well-dressed. Absolutely. Ryan Reynolds... Absolutely. You know, look at what he does. He wears a blue suit almost all of the time, well-tailored, maybe a bit, a little bit slim for my taste, but that's fine. He's, a, he's very much in shape, but he's just always classic. And then you have someone like, like Harry Styles, which is, well, he's a, he's a pop star. <laughs> you know, he, he, can get, he can wear whatever he likes and people will tell him he looks good. He doesn't. The Hawaiian shirts have their place. In, in Hawaii, perhaps. Or maybe on a beach somewhere and sipping a yes. cocktail, but, but wandering around the streets of London or LA is not particularly Hawaiian shirt places. This is true. Um, but but what, what I did like about that list, and it's, it's, it's up on the GQ website if people want to go and, go and look at it, is, is how many suits there are. Obviously not, not everyone, or, or at least classic clothes. Although it's perhaps not surprising that it's, it's all English and Canadians who are wearing the good, the good suits, primarily. I mean, they've got um, Aziz Ansari, the um, comedian, who, who does dress well, uh, undeniably. But it's, yes, it's an unusual list. But GQ put, put forward some rules about what these stylish men can teach us to wear. Sometimes GQ does good stuff on this topic. I don't always agree. But tight is still right, they say. Actually, I tell a lie. Sorry, this is, in the, this is the Guardian commenting on this. Ah, right. Yeah, so sharp cuts and tight fits. Mm. I mean, if, if, you, if you're really in shape like, like Eddie Redmayne or, or someone like that, then great. They do use a lovely turn of phrase to describe Eddie Redmayne, actually, of being a, a boarding school pupil interning at a private equity firm goes to a wedding. That's a lovely turn of phrase, isn't it? And quite correct. And, and they also say things like one piece fashion, which is about having a signature item. Yes. A white shirt or... Um, I mean, they, they do use the example of, of Diplo who, who insists on wearing trainers with suits and that just looks terrible, especially if you're wearing big, bulky trainers. I'm very anti-trainers with suits. It's, it just doesn't work. They say to stay away from, from hats, especially uh, wide-brimmed hats and they mention Pharrell Williams, which, fair enough, I wouldn't suggest anyone ever wears that hat that, that Pharrell wears, so there's an, perhaps a Mountie, but done well done to suit you hats are great whether that's a casual you know flat cap or a, a, a trilby 
you know, as long as it's a good quality hat that suits your face, you know, it's, it, it has a suitable, a suitable brim and crown height that looks that looks right for you, and it's not just plugged square on your head like a bicycling helmet. There's no reason not to wear hats. So I think stay away from the skinny stuff unless you you're really sure you look great in it, and ignore what the Guardian says, GQ says about hats. I would concur with that. What I, what I really liked was they had Justin Trudeau as, uh, on the list. He's come out of nowhere to be to, to, to be quite an interesting guy, hasn't he? I mean, with his understanding of quantum mechanics. And he's very fit and he's yoga and yeah. boxing and he's very trim and he is very stylish. For a politician, he wears clothes very well because most yeah. politicians seem not to. This is something that's quite, that's quite interesting. We might talk about this in, in more depth later. I think especially in, in American politics, there seems to be a, a drive for some politicians to deliberately wear slightly bad-fitting suits. I don't know whether this is to to not look elitist or to not look overly moneyed. Well, even Barack Obama, you know, his suits generally are very blocky, very baggy. At least, I mean, they they fit fine, but he dresses like someone who just goes into the shop, gets a suit off the rack and... And that's it, which I don't imagine he does. I imagine that it's far more care is taken. There was an interesting, um, some interesting photographs published when Mr. and Mrs. Obama went to have dinner with the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Prince Harry was there as well. And they had the dress down look that they were doing, which was basically suits with no ties. Barack Obama was in a blocky black suit, white shirt, didn't look particularly stylish got to be said. It wasn't a great suit, but at least it, it fit him. Prince Harry was in jeans and a suit jacket, which looked not great, I have to say. You know, the, the suit jacket was worsted, so quite a shiny business-type suit with jeans that were too long, so pooling around his ankles and very similar in colour. So it kind of looked like he'd lost his trousers and had just put his jeans on and hoped no one would notice. If you are going to wear jeans with a, with a jacket, with a suit jacket, make sure the jacket has got a similar texture to the denim, so something rough like flannel or, or tweed, and then make sure that it's not the same colour. Because it's never going to be exact, but otherwise it looks too much like a suit, but not quite. You kind of end up in a in an uncanny valley if you do that. I, I agree with that. Well, it's interesting. We should I should have a look at that. But maybe we should uh, list our uh, stylish gentlemen as opposed to fashionable gentlemen. I think that would be a good idea. But I think certainly um, Justin Trudeau would be on there because um, I think he, he does dress well. He does dress well, absolutely. Our partners, Hawes and Curtis, are a British brand with more than a hundred years of heritage in tailoring. In 1913, Ralph Hawes and George Frederick Curtis opened their first store in London's Piccadilly Arcade at the corner of German Street, renowned for its resident shirt makers. From the beginning, Hawes and Curtis attracted famous clientele, including the Duke of Windsor, Cary Grant and Fred Astaire, dapper gentlemen all. As a result of Hawes and Curtis's commitment to impeccable service and product excellence, the brand has been awarded four royal warrants. Today, Hawes and Curtis offers extensive menswear and women's wear collections, providing customers with complete looks for a whole variety of occasions. Please head over to their website, www.hawesandcurtis.co.uk. So what else has caught your eye uh, in the last couple of weeks? Well, sad news about Prince. Very young, very talented, although it seems that you know, talented rock stars are the ones who die young. Prince's music was, was great. Some of it was, some of it was a, was a little bit out there. But um, And he was a, a colourful character, but it was just the way he he dressed and had fun. High heels and flamboyant outfits and things, things you can only do, really, if you're a rock star. But just how much fun he had with how he dressed was amazing. Um, 
I think it was one of the obituaries where they talked about someone had, had challenged Prince on the fact that he, he was so short and that was why he wore heels. Um, that was, it was in Rolling Stone. And he said, uh, I like heels because girls like them. <laughs> because because they like me wearing them. It's like, yeah, that's that's fair enough. Um, it was just so much confidence, so much brio, so much um, just enjoyment in what he did. It's, he's a sad loss. Oh, he's a very sad loss. I mean, he was a yeah a huge uh, musical influence in my youth and my growing up. I, I, I had pleasure of seeing him a number of times live yep. in concert and in the 80s and 90s um and once in the last decade um but uh, you know he 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 was a fantastic and as you say he dressed he dressed eccentrically but well yes he wore fitted styled clothing that had flair but it was it was work he wore a lot of suits mm-hmm. yes he did almost that kind of um Regency, you know, the roughs and the collars and the never afraid to use colour in anything you want. No. There's a picture that I, I remember of him, I think it was the cover of a book or something, where he's wearing a, a, a white parka and he has a red polo neck shirt on, really, really vivid red. And it just perfectly matches, like it's natural colouring, but it's natural colouring in the centre and matched it with two extreme colours either side of it. It's fantastic. He knew how to work it. Style is about being comfortable and having fun, but also getting the right clothes that fit you and, and that kind of working. You work with colour. Yes, absolutely. It was a sad loss and, and uh, we, we salute you, Prince. Indeed. I think I'll have to go and listen to some Prince albums later. So what else is on the news sack? Well, it's something that's just I found personally amusing being a Brit and a Londoner. Uh, London Transport, the uh, organisation that runs our Mm -hmm. public transport network, decided an experiment to change the rules of etiquette on escalators. So if you're not from London and you're not a Londoner, um, there is a very specific set of rules for escalator etiquette in the tube, the underground, the subway here in London. You stand on the right-hand side and you leave the left-hand side clear for people who wish to walk faster up the left-hand side. And it is a great habit of, of many a Londoner and many a frequent London visitor to inform tourists or people who don't obey this as they stand and loiter on the left-hand side, generally to tut at them and woof them into the right-hand side and generally tell them off. It's something, if you if you travel in London, especially at rush hour, if you do it wrong, you will be told. You'll be in no doubt as to what you've done wrong. No, it's one of those funny, unwritten London transport etiquette mm. rules. What London transport had decided to do was try an experiment, um, which was to make both sides standing. So you would stand on the left and to the right. The reason for this is they would get through more people in the rush hour um, up the escalator because it yep. was not causing a bottleneck. People, because the majority of people standing on the right and only the fit and healthy would run up the. Uh, you the you left do hand often side. end up with a bulge of people at the bottom of the of the tube waiting to get on. So they were trying to force this to happen. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the great London British public completely ignored <laughs> the experiment. <laughs> And still obeyed the etiquette rules. They yep. stood on the on the on the right hand side, and no one stood on the left. There's a great yes. photo of yep. them trying to force the people to stand on the left hand side, and no one doing it. We don't tend to like change over much. For all it's a for all it's a fast paced modern modern city, there are some rules that are just inviolate. You know, we we don't change them. Things like you queue, you wait your turn. You let people who are in a hurry get past, and you, if, if you're content to dawdle, you, you dawdle. And everyone rubs along quite happily. I can imagine how London Underground have, have looked at this, because I'm 
I worked for London Underground many years ago, and they do have some quite complex and, and, and very accurate models of how people move around within their stations. But still, you stand on the right. You don't mess with this kind of etiquette, James. There are of rules. Of course, of know, course. I mean, you can't change an ingrained behaviour of, what, 50, 60, 100 years. You can't change that overnight. 1890s, the tube's opened, I think, yeah. I just feel sorry for the for the poor chaps whose job it was to, to tell people to move over. It was very amusing. It was, it was the, the, the righteous indignation of the London commuter is something to behold. So what else has caught your eye, James? This is slightly grim, but it was about an article in um, on Star.com about grooming in public. Oh, dear God. Yes. So Ken Gallinger, who's the columnist there, talks about a story where he was at a coffee shop and there was a, a young lady in her 20s taking some blackheads out of her fellow's neck and wiping them on a serviette. And then she used all those serviettes and went to get some more. And I'm, ooh, just no. I'm cringing I mean, that, at the thought of that. That is particularly horrible. I remember as I first started commuting in London, first started on my on my tube journeys, and being amazed at the ladies who would put their makeup on in public on the tube or tweeze their eyebrows or trim their nails. These are public spaces. That means you share them with other people. That means what you do in that space has an effect on, on others. Grooming is for at home. By all means, comb your hair. Stuff like that's not going to gross anybody out. But anything more than that is just... It's just grim. I have seen, as you said, I've seen people cut their nails. I've actually seen people, yes, squeeze spots on public transport. You know, I've seen all sorts of manner of of things. I mean, makeup to a degree. I'm just amazed that they can manage to get makeup on the moving train. But that's that's a completely separate skill set and conversation probably but i kind of feel as you say you know grooming yourself should not occur on um public transport or just no. in, in general public places i think you're no. right i live up in the in the north of, of england now so I, I quite often get the very early train down to london on a on a monday morning and a lot of the guys there will get themselves partly ready on the train so they'll maybe shave, shave and- but they do that in the bathroom so they go to the toilet on the train and have a shave put their tie on and get themselves sorted out, ready to get off the train and go to the office. And that's fine because you're going to a private space for it. Nobody's sitting there on the uh, across the table from you while I'm eating my bacon roll and reading The Economist, you know, shaving their face. I, I have seen that. I've seen electric shavers. People shave on the, che- on yeah. the train on, with electric shavers. The other one which I find very disconcerting is people who decide to spray eau de cologne and aftershave perfume um, in yes. confined spaces like tubes or trains and just and and liberally not not sort of like a little could have missed themselves and yes I, I guess a lot of that it, it it just comes down to consideration for, for people and recognizing that what you do affects somebody else it all comes down to the golden rule isn't it do as you would be done by yeah no i agree that wraps up our gentlemanly news section for for this month um, does, i'm sure yes. we'll find some other stuff and uh, for you for next month and if anything comes across our desk we will mention it probably in one of the other podcasts um, but those are the kind of things that we're talking about uh, at the moment do keep in contact with us we've had a couple of lovely emails from you and some very nice comments on the social media so if you want to drop us an email at enquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or find us on social media uh, that's instagram twitter facebook uh, we are the p gentlemen spread the message of the podcast but also get in contact with us with any questions queries or comments um, we're always delighted to hear from you so uh, it's the first podcast of the month so uh, we mm-hmm. uh, we like to talk a little bit of style and as our literary yeah. style section 
uh, now because it's book month. Um, mm-hmm. James, it's over to you. So I want to talk about some books on style, but my first disclaimer is that there are hundreds of thousands out there and some of them are very technical, but the ones I'm going to recommend hopefully are quite accessible, they're, they're well-written, they're interesting, and they're really, really useful. The first of those is an author I've talked about previously because I'm a huge fan, is uh, G. Bruce Boyer who is an, an American-style journalist. He's written a, a whole plethora of books, but there's two that I think are really useful and, and interesting. Actually, actually, three. I'll, I'll talk about three. The first one is, is Elegance, um, which, was, which was quite an early one he wrote, but that talks a lot about the history and the, the, the reasoning behind certain traditions of menswear. If you want to know why ties are a particular way or why jackets are a particular way, Bruce Boyer knows, and he writes about loads of that in, in elegance. And then a second one, which is something that I've, I think there are secondhand good quality copies still available through a books and Amazon and places because it's out of print. It was written in 1990 called Eminently Suitable, which is all about business attire. Now, it's a little bit dated because it is talking about the, the 90s and he talks about, for example, brands that aren't the way they were, like Abercrombie & Fitch, for example. But... What he talks about in this is how to dress for business, business smart and business casual, so that it's affordable, will last a long time, and you'll look good. And that's one of the things I really like about Boyer. He doesn't just say, buy this £5,000 designer suit that'll last you a few months. He says, you go and buy the best quality you can afford, and this is what quality is, and it'll last you 10 years. Or, or more. You know, the last you 10 years as your best suit and then 10 years as your second suit and then another 10 to do the gardening in. The final book from for, for, from Boyer, which was one that was released last year, which is, is an update, is called True Style, The History and Principles of Classic Menswear. This is really a collection of his of his articles that he's written in, in various other places. It's one of my favourite books on, on menswear and because he has such a, a delightful term of phrase. It's also quite nice that in this he really goes into something that I think is quite important, which is the link between general design principles and how we dress. And he refers that through through interior design. He's a big fan of interior design as well. And he compares interior design to personal style, which is really interesting for me. I see the logic in that. Especially because he, he likes the idea that you shouldn't look like a show home. Home, your home should look comfortable and welcoming and be clean and tidy and, and well-proportioned, etc. But it should look like the sort of thing where you shouldn't feel afraid to slouch on the sofa and, and read the paper, yeah. which is the same of, of a good suit. So eminently suitable, elegance and true style by Bruce Boyer. They're my first three picks. And then Excellent. I have I have a, a very short read, which is from a, a series by a company called Le Snob. This one's quite useful because it's published in, or been translated into quite a few languages. Le Snob's a, a European company, so it's in English, French, German, I think Dutch as well. And it's written by Simon Crompton, who is uh, probably the, the preeminent menswear blogger um, through his blog Permanent Style. And his blog's great, but it's not books, so we're not talking about that this month. It's just a little pocket guide to tailoring. He talks a lot about London, London and Parisian retailers, but the majority of it is really simple advice with good line drawings that says this is good, this is not good, which is really useful. And it's the sort of thing that you can you can read cover to cover in an hour and be much more informed than you would be otherwise. It's almost like a pocketbook in design with a very stylish dark blue and light blue colouring to it. But my final pick, which is, is something that it can be a little bit hard to get hold of, but it's called Dressing the Man by Alan Flusser. 
It's a great book. I have. That. It is such a good book. It's interesting because you, you you sometimes see this on the wall or or on a shelf in a menswear store. You you go in and you know then this is going to be a good shop. This guy's going to know what he's talking about because this is the Bible. Alan Flusser is a, another American. He came up through through retail with Brooks Brothers and then in his own shop and tailors. He's a somewhat eccentric dresser himself now. He has a tendency to wear suit jacket, shirt and tie and, and sweatpants, which um, the least probably said about the better. <coughs> no comments, yes. <laughs> yes, but he is, or certainly was for most of his career, the skipper. He knew how to, to make men dress well. And what makes this book so useful for any man or, or woman interested in style is that he breaks everything down by simple rules. And once you know the rules, you can then break them. But he talks about about quality, about fit, colour, pattern, texture. He uses fantastic diagrams going back from the illustrated clothing magazines from the 30s and 40s up to modern photographs. And so when he tells you these are the sort of colours you should wear if your colouring is like this, and he shows you a photograph of of a person wearing the right colours and the person wearing the wrong colours, and you can see the difference... It's fantastic. It's also slightly unusual in that he he tries to formulate rules of thumb that you can use for things like pattern. For example, if you think about pattern in terms of shape, circles, squares, checks, lines, small, medium, large, uh, and direction, especially for stripes, and using using those to tie things together. He doesn't just say, yes, you can wear patterns together. No, you can't, or wear one, or wear two, or wear three. He says, this is how you can do it, and gives some really useful advice. I think if you're going to pick any one book to learn about menswear and about style, Dressing the Man is the one. It was one of the first books that I got recommended to read mm-hmm. about men's style, and, and the one that you kind of always go back to. I think so. It's just so useful it's got sort of huge fold-out sections saying about these are good fabrics for for this season and for that season so for spring for example you know he, he recommends things like nail head patterns medium gray worsteds or window pane checks and, and prince of wales checks in, in light weights and then talks about for summer where you're using i mean americans so the the summers are obviously hotter than we get in most of at least in northern europe but about real lightweight suits and brighter colours. It's just really useful. It's not the cheapest book. It's a great big, whopping great hardback. It's an investment. It's the sort of thing you'll probably, if you're anything like me, read it through cover to cover several times. Those are my books. They'll be in the magazine. If yes. you haven't got that, download that off the Perfect Gentleman website. Uh, otherwise, you will be in the link uh, on the uh, media page for the podcast. Great. Trying to think if I'd add any to those books. Probably not. There's so many. I mean, Hardy Amy's did some good books. There's a really interesting book called Hatless Jack, um, which is about the demise of of the hat and the rise of Kennedy. Things like that that are are fascinating. But in terms of really building your your basic knowledge and starting off and and the Bibles, those are they. Absolutely. Our wonderful partners, the English Cream Tea Company, deliver a fresh take on tradition. The English Cream Tea Company offers quintessentially British gifts. Choose from the freshly prepared afternoon tea hampers to be hand-delivered right to your door throughout mainland UK, or select from a range of gift vouchers. There are also postable gifts of award-winning chocolate brownies, tea, delicious shortbread, and even cheese-please tuck tins with delicious cheese scones and chutney. After all, the perfect gentleman needs to be able to send the perfect gift, whether it's to say thank you, congratulations, or season's greetings. And the English Cream Tea Company supplies that, complete with your own personalised gift message. Who 
do you know who would not love the gift of afternoon tea? So go to theenglishcreamtea.com for a charming touch of British indulgence. One of the things when we talked about uh, doing the book issue, the book month on the podcast, looking for books on male grooming. Um, and remarkably, there aren't that many. There's a couple. Yes. I have one which is quite good on how to be your own butler, which uh, an, an old girlfriend of mine bought me several years ago, which goes into that in, in a bit of detail, but not a, not a huge amount. No, there are a couple. Mm. There are a couple and I've got them, but they're not quite right. So I thought, well, instead of uh, instead of trying to sort of review or find books for you guys uh, for grooming, because there's actually quite a few websites and some great videos out there and, and we'll be doing some of those as well and mm-hmm. eventually a, a groomed gentleman book. So I thought we'd just talk a little bit about the history of grooming and, and sort of give you some context because um, mm, I always cool. find that fascinating about how we are. We, we always think that we are the inventors of everything in the age <laughs> that we live in. Would it surprise you, James, to think that uh, the history of grooming goes back thousands and thousands of years? Well, I, I suppose we've been tr- probably trying to chase romantic partners for as long as there's been romantic partners to chase. And so that'll be, uh, it'll be part of it. It is part of it. But actually, yes. it, it, it's, what's interesting is it was um, partly religious, Okay, and partly practical. There is evidence of discovering of tweezers because before metal, there's evidence of tweezers in modern Neanderthal history being developed by two shells to pluck hair. Fascinating. Over thirty thousand years ago, men started using flint razors to shave. Wow. That's that's amazing. So we've been grooming a long time, but the really kind of the modern, what we would sort of recognise as modern specifically male grooming started really in the egyptian period that was kind of when what we would recognize as male grooming would happen Uh, the egyptians used to shave uh, men and women used to shave uh, with um, razors of copper they would use deodorant so they Mm -hmm. would make their own deodorant they would use uh, makeup i mean we've all Mm -hmm. seen that the the green makeup and the black coal uh, dark liners um Mm -hmm. they would wear wigs Okay. Some of the priests would shave. They, they valued cleanliness so much, mm-hmm. they would actually shave off all their body hair and then wear false beards and wigs. I did read a while ago that apparently um, there's evidence for, and this is for, for ladies, not men primarily, I think, but uh, waxing, that ladies used sugar and rags to, to wax their legs. Sugar waxing has been around since the Egyptians' times. Mm. It really came into prominence a bit later than that, but it's been around for, for quite a while. The, the, the waxing has been around since the, since the medieval times. Wow. Okay. And as we now battle the beard, no beard um, mm-hmm. today, the beard, no beard goes back that far as well. And then we sort of come and we move forward a bit. But, but even you go to uh, Asia and the, our Asian cousins, they were grooming as well. And they would use uh, rice flour mm-hmm. to paint their faces and make them white. They would pluck their eyebrows. They would paint their teeth. The makeup has been used by male and females for a long, long period of time. That's really interesting. First barber? When do you oh, think crazy. the first barber would be? I don't know. Ancient Greece, maybe? Ancient Greece. Well done, sir. Ancient Greece. Oh, excellent. A Greek businessman uh, introduced the first barbers to Rome, but men would go to get a shave. How fascinating. And even then, all that time ago, men would go there to be seen and gossip and discuss news and business and get a shave. It's a surprisingly social activity. And then also they started to do other things, like take care of their nails, the manicures, pedicures, yep. massages, haircuts. We've seen the the Roman baths. They were very clear about being clean and tidy mm-hmm. and neat and 
oiling themselves. Grooming really has has been around a long, long time. You know, even in the Dark Ages of the medieval period, there was still grooming going on. You know, having a long beard was important. Vikings were actually quite clean. They used to lose grooming tools, yes. combs, mm-hmm. tweezers, toothpicks, um, and that kind of stuff as well. So, you know, we've been around grooming for a hell of a long time. Now, I did read, and I don't know if this is true or not, you can probably tell me, um, that apparently the Vikings were the first to to iron their clothes using stones. I did not know that. I have to look that one up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I I was told that probably by a Viking reenactor. That's that's very interesting. I didn't know that one. I didn't know that one. Then we come to the modern Christianity period, and that was when grooming came about, and, and we have the thing about shaving and unshaving, and that actually was dictated to by the Pope. So the Pope okay. would not be shaven and all the priests would follow his example and, and then the next Pope would grow facial hair and, and it would be repeated across the, the world. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting factor of how religion and royalty and, and that has led male grooming as much as fashion. And interesting enough, um, we come to medieval England, we think that it was quite a dirty time, there was quite a smelly time, but yes. they did clean themselves. They didn't bath always frequently, um, though mm-hmm. uh, Elizabeth I was a no notorious bather oh conscious of being clean all the time they used to wipe themselves down with linen rags and clean themselves with fresh linen and and use scent and soap soap was around then soap's been around for a few thousand years at this point but cosmetics came a big part at that point and men were in cosmetics mm-hmm. it faded away for a bit and the 1800s was where it became very ungood to wear makeup and all those kind of things and the extravagances of that. But, you know, barbers were there and the the, the great beard, no beard debate still raged all the way through. And the first barbering school was in the 1920s. Uh, The first patented razor by Gillette was 1903. We forget that grooming has been going on for a hell of a long time. I remember getting a haircut as quite a young man, probably about 14, 15, and the barber or stylist terribly modern, talking about this new makeup for men. And yet that's been something that we've done as far back as ancient Egypt or beyond. No, it's hardly a new thing. And, and, and you know, we men have been vain for that period of time. We think of grooming as modern, and yet it's not. Grooming for men has been around for a very, very long time. So no, take, take some care, guys. Take some care. Yes, that's splendid. It was a bit of, a bit of fun and a bit of uh, delving deep into the history of male grooming. Elliot Rhodes is the foremost belt brand that seeks to make people see belts in a whole new way and to show them that a great belt is imperative to dressing with style and individuality. With four stores, three in London and one in Japan, Elliot Rhodes belts are bespoke and innovative. They create beautiful luxury leather belts and buckles in a wide variety of colours and textures and styles. They suit all tastes. Check them out at elliotrhodes.com. We round off today's podcast with the first part of our interview with our author, is Guy Fraser Sampson. Guy is a fiction and a non-fiction author. He's an established writer. He's known for his series of Map and Lucia novels, featured on Radio 4 and optioned by BBC Television. I interview him about his work as an author, um, both in the fiction space, which we talk about, um, and his non-fiction stuff, where he's written economic economic textbooks and history books. We talk about his new book, which we review, actually in a later podcast and in the magazine, which is called Death in Profile. It was the first of a new detective series for him. Now I got a chance to speak to him at the Corinthian Hotel in London. We shall head over there now and, and listen to that. 
So, welcome, Guy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Mm -hmm. Wow, and, and talking on the Perfect Gentleman magazine, it's lovely to have you with us. Um, so, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and, and what you do. Okay, I'm a senior fellow at Cass Business School. I lecture on various postgraduate modules there, mostly based around investment. I've formerly been a corporate lawyer in the City of London and then an investment banker. And I've also spent time in investment management, most notably with the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. And I've been writing books on a variety of subjects for some years now. I've written, I think, about 14 books, mostly on finance and investment and economics. Uh, but more recently, venturing into fiction, firstly with my Matt and Lucia books, which of course are a continuation of the originals by E.F. Benson, and then most recently into the world of detection fiction, but very heavily influenced by the golden age of writing before the Second World War. Oh, fabulous. So, an uh, uh, interesting transition that from sort of corporate lawyer, investment banker to lecturer, writer. But how yes. did that come about? Where, 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 why, why did you sort of transition out of? I think the, 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 the standard life. Yeah, I think the initial transition from a lawyer was simply I, I just made a bad career choice. I, I won my mooting competition. That will mean something to people who've read law. I won my mooting competition at university both my last two years, and I should really have gone to the bar, but for a variety of reasons I didn't. I became a solicitor. And in those days, the distinction between the two branches of the profession was much more pronounced. You were actually quite limited in what you could do as a solicitor. And I really, I think, wanted to be an advocate. So I suspect had I gone to the bar, I might still have been uh, a barrister today, but I didn't. So instead I went off and did an MBA. So, which is my life come full circle so I now lecture on MBA courses and I use that really as a springboard I didn't really know what I wanted to do to be honest and I drifted first into working for a family office and then for an investment bank doing corporate finance M&A type transactions and then how did the writing come about? The writing was really quite serendipitous I was invited some time ago to give a, a talk at the National Association of Pension Funds conference in Edinburgh and I happen to be very, fairly provocative, which I tend to be when I'm speaking at these occasions, and that got, that, that got reported in the Financial Times, and the next thing I knew I had a phone call from Wiley, the big financial publisher, saying we'd like you to write a book for us, which I did, because I'd always wanted to write a book, but it took me some time to make the transition to fiction, and my only regret, to be honest, is that I didn't start a lot earlier, because I, I now realize that sort of writing is, is probably the one thing that is, is closest to what I want to do. Okay, so so let's talk a little bit about the the, the, the non-fiction writing yes. first and, and lecturing. So why why do you like lecturing? Let's let's. I, I love lecturing because I feel I'm making a difference. I think I'm probably genuinely quite a good communicator. And I particularly like lecturing on the MBA course because it's a course that's typically taken by people who are trying to change their lives in some way. They're investing a lot of time and a lot of money in that. And I, I just find it very rewarding, not in a financial sense, but in an emotional sense. I find it rewarding to be part of helping people change their lives. And then, of the so you've written mostly non-fiction at the moment. Mostly non-fiction, yes. What? It's a it's a combination of MBA type textbooks such as private equity and multi-asset class investing and investment strategy, and my particular sort of pet little hobby horse is trying to explain complicated concepts to people who don't have any real specialist education in that area. So that 
is books like No Fear Finance, which really tries to explain finance to people who don't have a mathematical background. Which is most people, I think. It's most people, and it's surprisingly difficult. It's without doubt the most difficult book I ever wrote. It's extremely difficult trying to explain a concept like risk or the time value of money to people who are not arithmetically minded. Yeah, and I think what's the interesting thing about that is it's it's a great book, Um, but what's interesting is that, that, that so many people have no clue about macro level finance even and then micro level finance or any kind of education about what money is at the end of the day and how money flows around the world. That's right. I mean, I strongly believe that finance should be a compulsory sixth form subject in schools because I, I do find it tragic that people go out into the world expected to make all sorts of complicated financial decisions which will have a big impact on their lives, things to do with pensions and mortgages and so forth, without any real idea of the issues behind the decisions they're making. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think, I think that's one of the interesting... I think our education system is somewhat... Not, not fit for purpose anymore. I think that's right. I, th- I think where it fails is in teaching essential life skills. Yeah. And finance clearly is an essential life skill. It's almost impossible these days to go through life without understanding finance. No, I think that's very true. I think um, one of the things I realised as I left school, I didn't, wasn't particularly good at school, but I left school was that all the things that I was taught at school, I had some lovely subjects, but the practicalities of most of them were nil, really. Yes, that's right. Sort of hit the real world and okay well what happens there and, and yeah. I think that's true of a lot of education you get kind of it's a lot, lot of theory and a lot of nice stuff but practical stuff is, is, is severely lacking and it's something you really notice when you go to America for example that the, the base level of knowledge of things like investment and finance which ordinary people have the, the person in the street has is distinctly higher than it is in the UK yeah it's an interesting thing I mean, it, it reminds me of that sort of thing we, we talk about a lot the perfect gentleman is that um, you know 200 300 years ago you were expected to be a polymath you were expected yes. to be able to talk about philosophy and science and finance and write poetry and Yes. all that kind of stuff and now it's all gone you, you have to be a specialist and, it's and the generalist it's the cult of the specialist and it's another reason why I left the law actually I found myself being squeezed into an ever narrowing area of practice and it really wasn't what I wanted to do I mean in fairness of course the sum total of knowledge is, is considerably greater today than it was a few hundred years ago yeah. but I think your point is still valid I, I do think it's tragic that we're not expected to be the nation no, we're not, and, it, and that is quite sad. I think it's a bit, it's, it's a bit of a sad thing for us. Um, so, so the non-fiction is is, is heavily finance-based, and it's very good, and some of it's quite provocative. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy being provocative, or is that, or is it kind of just? It's not that I enjoy being provocative per se. I think I'm just a fully paid-up member of the awkward squad. I think, <laughs> I think if I see that I something I think people have got wrong, I do feel a sort of duty to point it out. Um, and, and you know anybody who's been to any of my lectures will know that I, I think there's quite a lot wrong with modern financial theory, and that's what quite a lot of my books are about. Well, yeah, this is very well. It's very true as well. But it's, <laughs> I, I agree with that. So uh, I'm going to sort of jump backwards. Uh, were you an awkward young man? An awkward? child? I think I was an unusual child, if only that I grew up in a house without television, so I was a voracious reader from a very early age, and I certainly always preferred the company of books to the company of other people. 
So I, I, I would typically sort of start reading a book when I got up in the morning and stop when I went to bed. And my long-suffering mother used to have to take me to the public library, usually every other day during the, during the school holidays, because I did also develop a knack of reading very quickly. So I, w- I was just trying to calculate the other day how many books I'm, I must have read in my life. And it sounds a ridiculous number, but it's probably 10,000 or more. And it's, it's very feasible. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm an avid reader and a very fast reader too. I mean, I have time. And I can do a book a day quite, yes. quite merrily and quite happily. Yes. And on holidays, I'm, I'm known for that. You know, I'll take six or seven books on a, on a week-long trip and I'll get yes. through all of them. And much to the chagrin of my, my wife and, and family when I was growing up as well. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a feasible thing. And I think it's very interesting. I think we don't read enough as a culture now as well. But that's no. And I, and I really don't understand how people really learn things, how they acquire knowledge without reading books. Because so much of it just gets squirreled away in some little corner of the subconscious and it sort of comes back to you when you need it. Yeah, and the connections. Are yes, and it's you. making the connections, as you say, that is the important thing. Oh, okay. So where did you grow up? I grew up in North London. Excellent. Um, Sorry, a Londoner born and bred? A Londoner born and bred. One of the rare ones. (laughs) Yes, although I went to school uh, mostly in Norfolk. And my parents also had a holiday home in Norfolk, so I'm... I was in my younger days. I was at least a, 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 a pseudo Norfolk person as well, okay, but I'm, so I'm essentially a Londoner. Yeah, no, that's a good. I, as a born and bred Londoner, I appreciate yeah. that as well. That's really cool. I like that very much. I didn't realise you were a born and bred Londoner. Oh yes. Yeah, no, oh, yeah, that's interesting. <coughs> hence the hence the book we'll come on to in a second. Yeah. So, um, what started you writing fiction? That's a very good question. I, like most people, I had tried to start a novel. I'd written the first couple of chapters of a novel, several, different novels, several times during, during my life. And it's, it's an interesting thing. I think once you first write a book and finish it and have it published, even though it's a non-fiction book, it does give you that self-confidence, that self-realization that this is actually something you can do. But writing fiction is, is intensely more difficult, I find, than writing non-fiction because you really, do, you really are laying yourself open, you're opening yourself up. I mean, I've done a little bit of singing in the past and it's, it's, it's a similar feeling, although singing is more intense because you're really standing there and you're sort of opening yourself up and saying, well, this is what I have to offer. But of course, there's always the danger that people don't like what you have to offer. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of writers, just like a lot of musicians, do have quite fragile egos. Well, there's, there's, well I think all creative people have, have somewhat fragile egos. Yes. Yeah, I think. I think. So, so, so you wrote a few started chapters and then... Yes, I mean, I think I always knew. I grew up with a couple of different fictional worlds um, that, that stayed with me, that I, that I dipped into at a very early stage and, and read all the books and stayed with me. And they were really the, the world of Map and Lucia, particularly the world of Tilling, which, of course, is wry in fairly thin disguise, and the world of Lord Peter Whimsey. Uh, and, and for some reason, those two worlds always appealed to me, particularly the world of Lord Peter Whimsey, actually. And it was always a sad disappointment to me as I grew up to the age of, sort of 17 or 18 and discovered that ordinary people didn't have manservants and didn't, <laughs> didn't have a Lagonda. <laughs> <laughs> yes, didn't have ballets. <laughs> or a flat in the Albany. I, 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 it was a sad, sad disillusionment. I, I, and, and sad that you weren't going to get yes, there Yes, absolutely. Yes, I'd, al- I'd always imagined myself in a silk dressing gown. <laughs> yeah, that, that and that, for me, it was that and, and, and realising Jeeves was no longer around. Yes, you know you couldn't yes. get a Jeeves anymore. That's right. I was I was very disappointed. Yes, in that. but they, for that. me they were very real worlds. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I know we're going to talk about the book in a moment, but, but that is is one of the issues, obviously, that comes through in the book. Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting that that, that we you know fictional universes stick with us yes. for long periods of time, and I think. Uh, 
that's something that's I think universal and, and still true today. Yeah. You have big people sticking with fictional universes. You can see that in the modern context with things like Harry Potter and so yes, on and so forth, that, that are yeah. so connected to people and go there. And, and, and I think that's that's very interesting that how much that sticks with with you as, as a young person and then keeps her going yes. through, through and, as, time. And so when I came to recreate the world of Tilling, the world of Matt Lucieri, it seemed very natural somehow. So how did you get to do that? It I mean, was an adventure because I, I, I broke sort of the cardinal rule which I've kept ever since, which is never to write a book that I don't already have at least strong interest in from a publisher. So I wrote Major Benji, which is the first map Lucieri book, completely on spec. Oh wow! I have to say, I, I always thought it would get published, and it was it was a great shock to me to discover how difficult it was. It was my first education, I think, in how modern publishers are looking to tick certain boxes. Uh, and if a book doesn't tick those boxes, they're not really quite sure how to deal with it. So, it, it, for example, I tried to get an agent to represent me when I was writing my Matt and Lucia books, and all the agents universally said, you know, these are hopelessly uncommercial. Which is ironic when you consider that all three have now been optioned by BBC television. Yeah, there was a bit of BBC series recently, yeah. and, and, yeah. And, and it's a, and, and that, that sort of books are universally appealing. Yeah. Um, I think I, I always uh, had this argument with my uh, some of my creative friends about um, novels or books, and the, why why do they keep remaking stuff? Because because they're universally appealing. We have a sense of a, a, a link to that story all the time. Why do yes. they remake the Musketeers? Why well, do they remake? I think there's a more cynical reason as well, though, which is that the, the television companies want something safe. Yes. Uh, and, and remaking something which has an it's, it's like you don't get fired for, for buying IBM yes if you remake something which has a name particularly if you can then add a couple of big name actors to it it's, it's a fairly safe commercial bet whereas yeah. branching out with something new is, is much more speculative and high risk or at least as they see it so you wrote the book and so how did how did you A get published and how did you know I'm assuming you had to go through the, the rights holders of Map and Lucia yes with the first one I wrote Map and Lucia was still in uh, E.F. Benson the creator was still in copyright in the UK so I had to do a deal with the estate to get their permission they had to obviously to review some of the text to see that, that it was that it was suitable that it wasn't going to in any way sort of infringe on the, the, the image of, of Map and Lucia and E.F. Benson um, then after I'd written it I had to find a publisher which was very difficult. I ended up finding someone who was uh, wanted to take a chance on it, was prepared to do a partnership publishing deal. Uh, and then I was very lucky. Almost immediately afterwards, I was asked to write a book on cricket, actually, by a, a different publisher. And it turned out that the editor I was given, a very nice lady called Olivia, knew very little, at least at that stage, about cricket, but was an avid Map and Lucia fan. So she promptly <laughs> negotiated to buy the rights of the first book from the existing publisher and commissioned me to write two more. Uh, and I always, I always sort of knew it was going to be a trilogy. I'd always planned to write the trilogy because, I, without giving anything away, for those who haven't read it, I always had the ending of the third book in mind when I was actually writing the first book. So I always knew where I was going, which is unusual for me when I write fiction. Normally, I don't know where I'm going. Normally, I just okay. create the characters and I let them do their thing, and I run along behind making notes. And it, it's interesting you say that. We'll come on to that the character creation thing in a second because, I, uh, having written myself, I understand that that process. So, um, so that was that was really good cricket. Your passion, your passion. Uh, yes, another passion of mine, Test cricket, and it was again. I, I felt there was something new to be said. It was a very interesting period of English cricket. It's the, it's the period from 1967 to 1977. And for those who know their cricket, that embraces the close affair, the Dolavera affair, and then ends with World Series cricket. So it was a decade of cricket, cricket controversy, 
largely driven, it has to be said, by, by both um, class and racial prejudice. And it was, it was a fascinating period to write about. I got an opportunity to interview a lot of my boyhood heroes. How uh, fun is that? Amazing old test, test cricketers, many of whom sadly have, have passed away since then. And I also was very fortunate in that the MCC opened up their archives to me, and I was allowed to read anything I want in, in the MCC archives. And particularly with the close affair, that was uh, actually a very enlightening experience. Oh, amazing. Yes. So will you write another cricket book in the future? It's been suggested. I, I, I think I may not, simply if only because I'm, I'm not sure I'll have the time in my writing schedule to do it. But it, it has been suggested that there'd be a follow-up book called The Three Gs, which will be about Gooch, Gower and Gatti. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, I, that's, that's good. So uh, apart from cricket, what other hobbies do you, what are you, what are you passionate about? I've always been very passionate about classical music, particularly chamber music. Uh, it's interesting, I talk about cricket, but I used to spend a lot of time in the United States, particularly in San Francisco, and I also became very fond of American football, the NFL, which I think is a wonderful game. Oh, yes, and I, I've kept up my interest in that. Although, although, sadly, the San Francisco 49ers are no longer the team they were when I used to, when I used to spend large amounts of time in, in San Francisco. Thank you, Guy. It was uh, really fascinating. Guy is a true gentleman. Um, he loves his suits. <laughs> He's a dapper, dapper man. And look forward to the next part of Guy's interview in a couple of weeks' time. I look forward to that. That's it for the day. Always a pleasure talking to you, Zach. Always a pleasure talking to you, too. It's goodbye from me, Zach Falconer-Barfield. I uh, hope to see you next week. It's goodbye from me. Uh, I'll speak to you all soon. Another book which I didn't get to in that one, but which I think is is pretty interesting, is um, there's a guy called Eric Musgrave, who's done a few books, <clears throat> and they're big sort of coffee table style affairs, but he's done a really cool one called Sharp Suits. Okay. Um, which is basically photos and text about primarily celebrities, famous men, wearing wearing suits. But what's really interesting in this, I think, is he kind of takes a, a history of suits right the way through from from the well sort of the the turn of the century right the way through and you've got sort of all sorts of weird and wonderful people you wouldn't normally see like a lot of musicians like Kraftwerker in there for example or, or Elvis and New Romantics and a whole section on Bowie suits from the movies and if you want to know a little bit more about kind of famous suits and also see how suits have changed over time it's a really interesting read you don't you won't learn a lot from it it's full of pretty suits i have shelves upon shelves of books at home they're kind of any spare space in the in the house where there's a bookshelf could go there is one um and i have quite a few of them are dedicated to books about menswear it's it's somewhat of a problem I, I don't agree with that wholeheartedly. There's no such thing as a problem as far as books are concerned. <laughs> well, yeah, it's only when you come to move house, when you move house as often as I do, and then you you realise you have to carry the boxes off them because they are heavy. So my family are always big uh, bibliophiles. We love our books. Mm-hmm. When we moved house all the time, all through my early years, mm-hmm. um, it was boxes of books. And yep. still to this day, it's books. We live in a small flat in London, but <laughs> so all my books are sitting at my mother's house in Kent. And, oh. and, but there's bookshelves in literally every room. I can't remember who it was who said it. If, if you go to someone's house and they don't have books, you find it very hard to trust them. I think it was Moby, the uh, the um, the singer. Yes, the, quite quite the, quite the possibly. Musician. Yes, there's something to be to be said from that. I remember um, uh, going to 
to meet a guy to say home it was someone we were looking to do some business with and he had a bookshelf which had a number of trendy fashionable books going back a few a few years and not all of the spines were pristine oh for show yeah, books yes and it was and he was i mean he was he was a decent guy he was okay we did a bit of work together but it was just it 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 was a an early indicator of his character, and that was him all over, you know, style over substance. I'd never seen someone do that before, just have books to be seen rather no, than spread. That's strange, yeah. I was uh, talking to some young ladies and gentlemen um, the other week, and uh, we were talking about books, and I said, you should read books, and they were arguing with me about the fact, well, you can get everything on the internet. Mm-hmm. Well, I said, but the internet's not really content like books. Books, A, have a physical thing to them mm. but also it's that it's a idea generally spread out over a long period of time I'm not talking fiction here but you know mm. non-fiction stuff it's it's a thought process that gives you information and you read a book and then you might read another couple of books and then two years down the line your neurons will fire and make connections and suddenly that might be the answer to a question or that thought process that you've been pondering on mm. or something like that and i think that, that we've lost that you know that that art has disappeared somewhat because you're reading books i read quite a lot of business books and sometimes i get frustrated when you've got an idea which could have been best put forward in 100 pages and spread over 300 conversely a lot of articles and i see this as well with with self-published books is they don't have the same quality and precision that you get with a book that's been professionally edited and probably proofread quite a few times and it's not just things like like grammar or spelling it's how the the articles or the the chapters and the sections and the arguments are laid out and when you get a a really good well-written non-fiction book that does that it's wonderful you compare that to something like blog posts or to self-published books where the the same ideas are there but they're generally i, th- I feel I less well formed i love the tactile nature of books i find my brain responds differently to something when i read it on paper than when i read it on my ipad because a book is a, is a physical heavy thing people put more care into it i think that's true i i, yeah. I have a thing where I, I i i cannot read non-fiction that's not a physical book I struggle with that, especially when there's a whole series of books on um, flawless consulting. And I bought the first one as an ebook, I think, or as a, as a PDF, maybe something like that. But it was it was almost impossible to follow because you had to jump around so much mm. and you had to refer to charts and tables. And they're not cheap, the books, they're sort of big, hefty hardbacks, but I, I shelled out for them and they're great. I go through them with a highlighter and I make notes in the margins and I stick post-it notes all over them with additional notes or thoughts or things like that on and it's so much i get so much more from reading like that than i do from the ipad absolutely i mean i could do fiction on a, on a kindle or an ipad i can sure I can, sure because i'm not as you say i don't i don't want to make notes or i don't want to stick a post-it note in there or a tag or i don't actually write in the books but you know yeah. I, I usually have post-it notes and little tag notes and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff and i'll i generally read you know have a book next to my book and i'll make if i'm reading non-fiction and yes make yeah. notes on it and go oh that's interesting write that down and this is maybe something we could talk about in a future episode you know about the idea of a commonplace book yes well one of the things that that is useful in in a commonplace book and it's you see it with modern note-taking approaches so example the guys who do or field notes talk mm. about this is that the act of taking an idea that you've read putting it into your own words and then writing it down helps you better understand that idea and recall it later yes a lot of good quality teaching is done that way you read a number of books to understand an argument you synthesize 
a view of that and then you relate that back to somebody else in written form. You know, I I do that with almost everything that I want to understand or remember. I, I very rarely refer back to the notes, but just the act of writing it down sticks it in my brain. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I've got, I've got half a dozen books that I do that with. So I have different books with different subjects. We should have a, we should, we should have a talk about notes and note-taking and notebooks and, and things like that, I think, in a, in a future episode. We should do it in a, uh, a business gentleman. Yes, yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah, I, I think that's, I'll, I'll add that one to the list. <laughs> Wonderful. Excellent. Well, take care, James. I'll speak to you next week. Indeed. Speak to you soon, my friend. Goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nickel at the Pistachio Palace.